0: Welcome to Scripture Uncovered, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Here's your host, Dr. Bill Creasy.
1: Hello, gang. Bill Creasy here. I hope all of you had a blessed Holy Week and a wonderful Easter morning. Here at home, we always take Holy Week off, making time to focus on the meaning of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. In the Roman Catholic tradition, that means participating in the Holy Week liturgies. Holy Thursday, Good Friday, the pinnacle of the Lenten season, the Saturday evening Easter Vigil, and the beautiful Easter morning Mass. On Good Friday, we read again the story of Judas betraying Jesus, of Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, of his trial, and of his brutal crucifixion and death. At our little village church of Mary Star of the Sea in La Jolla, The story of Jesus' passion was chanted with our music director, Lupe Rios, with a beautiful high tenor voice serving as narrator, our pastor voicing Jesus in his wonderful baritone voice, and a trio of sopranos serving as the other voices. On more than one occasion, Lupe's eyes brimmed with tears as he chanted the story of Jesus' crucifixion. And our pastor, Father Rafferty, came close to weeping as he sang Jesus' last words. It was truly an extraordinarily moving liturgy. But during the liturgy, I thought a lot about Judas. Judas, the betrayer. Historically, Judas has been portrayed as the archetypical turncoat, Jesus' loyal follower who sold out his Lord for 30 pieces of silver. In paintings of The Last Supper, Judas is often seen skulking out of the room, often in shadows, looking over his shoulder, a money bag clutched in his hand, guilty as sin. In Dante's Divine Comedy, Dante places Judas, not just in hell, but in the very pit of hell, in the jaws of the triple-faced Satan himself. Let me read to you part of Canto 34 of the Inferno, as Dante and his guide Virgil finally arrive at the bottom of Hell's Ninth Circle. Oh, how amazed I was when I looked up and saw a head, one head, wearing three faces. One was in front, and that was a bright red. The other two attached themselves to this one just above the middle of each shoulder. And at the crown, all three were joined in one. In each of his three mouths, he Satan crunched a sinner with teeth like those that rake the hemp and flax, keeping three sinners constantly in pain. The one in front. Why right, the biting he endured was nothing like the clawing that he took. Sometimes his back was raked clean of its skin. That soul up there who suffers most of all, my guide Virgil explained, is Judas Iscariot, the one with head inside and legs out kicking. Oh, I can just imagine the scene and hear the crunching of Judas's bones and the teeth of Satan. Dante's Ninth Circle is reserved for the most heinous of crimes, treachery, the betrayal of intimate relationships. Surprising to some, Dante's Ninth Circle is not one of fire and scorching heat, but one of bitter cold, of souls encased in rock hard ice. At the very center of the frozen lake is Satan himself, encased up to his waist in ice, his massive wings furiously flapping, creating a gale-force bitterly cold wind. Satan is crunching away at Judas, raking his back with iron claws as Judas kicks and screams, the sound muffled within Satan's drooling, stinking mouth. Cassius and Brutus, by the way, are in the other two mouths of Satan. You might recall Cassius and Brutus assassinated Julius Caesar, who was the uncle of Caesar Augustus, who himself was the patron of Dante's guide, the Latin poet Virgil. In Dante's Hell, the triple-faced Satan is a grotesque parody of the Trinity, three persons in one. What a horrible fate for Judas. But it's a fate that raises several questions. Judas was with Jesus for his entire three-year public ministry. He shared meals with Jesus. He witnessed Jesus teaching and preaching. He saw the miracles Jesus performed. In Acts chapter 1, we learn that to be an apostle, a capital A apostle, one of the twelve, you had to have been an eyewitness to Jesus' entire public ministry, from his baptism in the Jordan River through his death, burial, and resurrection in Jerusalem. You had to have been there the entire time. And apparently, Judas was. So what do we really know about Judas? Well, first of all, his name was Judas Iscariot. Judas is a form of Judah, Jacob's fourth son, and Iscariot is a man from Kirioth, a village about 10 miles south of Hebron within the tribal territory of Judah. Judas is the only apostle not from Galilee. Now that's significant because, as you might recall from my teaching of the Gospels, every radical revolutionary movement in the first century AD in the area of Palestine originated in Galilee. Galilee was a hotbed of radical thought and action. Kirioth, down in the territory of Judah, was a much more conservative territory. So Judas was an outsider. Secondly, Judas is always listed last among the twelve disciples. Peter, James, and John are always listed first. So Judas brought up the tail end of the disciples. Number three, Judas' motives for betraying Jesus are unclear in Scripture. It certainly wasn't for the money. Thirty pieces of silver is pocket change, about $240 in today's terms. It's not a payoff or a bribe, rather, it's baksheesh a token of gratitude for a favor granted when we travel in the middle east as we so often do i keep a few hundred dollars of bakshish in my pocket a little cash to make our teaching tours run smoothly not really a tip but a little token of gratitude for favors granted along the way we might note too that our apostle john did not like judas at all In John's gospel, he calls him a thief. He accuses him of stealing money from the common money purse. He accused Judas of not having the right motives. Oh, he didn't like him at all. I think in the gospel, according to John, we have to read very carefully and understand John's dislike of Judas. Also, we read that Satan prompts Judas into betraying Jesus, only entering him after he does so. Now think about that for a moment. Satan prompts Judas into betraying Jesus. I'll develop that a little bit as we go. We might note too, that when Jesus is condemned, Judas rushes back to the chief priest and he pleads, "I, I, I have sinned in betraying innocent blood and he tosses the money back at them. And then, most tellingly of all, Judas went out and hanged himself. You know, I I think Judas is a much more complex character than he's usually portrayed. Clearly, he doesn't betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. That's, That's mere pocket change. And Judas hanging himself is not the reaction of a man whose plan succeeded. It's the action of a man whose plan went horribly, horribly awry. So we need to look more deeply into Judas's character and explore more thoroughly his motives. We might begin by exploring two possible avenues. Number one, perhaps Judas was acting as a peacemaker. And number two, perhaps Jesus told Judas to do it intriguing possibilities. Let's look at the first, Judas acting as peacemaker. Now, you might recall, after the scene of the Transfiguration, you know, at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say I am? And some said, oh, a prophet, others Elijah, Uh, others John the Baptist. But Jesus said, no, who do you say I am? And Peter answered for the group, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That's correct, said Jesus. And then he took them to a high mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration. And there, in the presence of two credible witnesses, Moses and Elijah, God the Father himself said, in the hearing of Peter, James, and John, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. We know definitively at that point who Jesus is. And then when they come off the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus set his face like flint and headed straight to Jerusalem and the cross. He told the disciples along the way three times, we're going to Jerusalem, I will be arrested, tried, crucified, buried, and raised. And remember the first time, Peter even said, not on my watch. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. This is not your agenda, it's mine. So off they went to Jerusalem, all the while Jesus knowing exactly what would happen. And quite honestly, he does everything within his power to ensure it does. When Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, In very much the way Solomon entered Jerusalem, when David elevated him to the throne, there are thousands of people on the Mount of Olives proclaiming him son of David and king. And what did Jesus do? When he got to the bottom of the Mount of Olives, to the temple area, he took a whip and he went in and wrecked the place. Well, that created a scandal. And the next day he came back and day by day, day by day, he engaged the religious leaders in conflict, escalating that conflict each day. In fact, on Thursday of Holy Week, Jesus, in front of a huge crowd of people at the southern steps of the temple area, goes after the religious leaders. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you brood of vipers. He calls them snakes He tells them they're going to hell, he really lays into them, and then he walks out. Well, that evening, while the Last Supper was going on, an executive session of the Sanhedrin met, and they debated, what are we going to do with him? Because every day when he came back, he escalated the encounter. And if he comes back tomorrow, Friday, and he escalates again, this city, see a bloodbath. We had over a million Jews in Jerusalem during Passover of AD 32, Jews who were not at all happy about the Roman occupation. We had a good portion of the 10th Roman Legion stationed at the Antonio Fortress, and we had Jesus stirring up the crowd. We might imagine that the high priest Caiaphas, Jesus, and Pontius Pilate were like three men standing in a room up to their knees in gasoline, each holding a lit match. And if he comes back tomorrow and escalates again, this place is going up in flames. What are we going to do with him? Now, imagine if during this time you were among the twelve apostles, the twelve disciples. They don't understand what he's doing, clearly. And Judas, perhaps. Having learned from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that blessed are the peacemakers, Perhaps Judas approached the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership, and offered to bring Jesus and the Jewish leaders together. Get Jesus away from the crowds. Get the religious leaders away from the crowds. They were both playing to the crowds. Get them together privately, and they could sort out their differences. And that's where Satan tempting Judas or prompting Judas may well come in. Think of your own life. When you are tempted by Satan to do something that you know is not right, Satan doesn't say, you know, I think you should really commit that big sin. No. Satan always, very subtly, presents what he wants you to do as a positive, good thing. What did he say to Eve? Oh, the fruit from the tree. If you eat of that, you'll be like us. Good for food. It's pleasant to the eye. Why? It's a good thing. Satan always presents sin under the guise of something good. And perhaps his prompting Judas was exactly that. Prompting Judas to try to arrange a meeting of the minds between Jesus and the leadership. He's given the 30 pieces of silver, Baksheesh, as I mentioned. A token of gratitude for his help. But then, when Jesus is arrested, tried, condemned, and crucified, Judas rushes back to the religious leaders. He throws the money at them. I betrayed innocent blood. And he goes out and hangs himself. Clearly, as we noted, not the action of a man whose plan worked, but the action of a man whose plan went horribly, horribly awry. That's a possibility, and I rather like that possibility. The second possibility is perhaps Jesus told Judas to do it. When Jesus and the others left the Mount of Transfiguration and headed toward Jerusalem, Jesus knew exactly what he had planned to do and ensured that it would happen day by day, day by day, escalating the encounter, ensuring that he would be arrested, tried crucified and buried, and trusting God that he would be resurrected on the third day. Perhaps Jesus told Judas, Judas who was the outsider, Judas who was from down south, ten miles south of Hebron, from Kiriath, a little village in the country. Why, Judas's accent would even be different from those in Galilee. He must have felt like a bit of an outsider. And maybe Jesus taking him into confidence was the right move. Perhaps Jesus told Judas to do it. Remember at the Last Supper? Jesus said, under his breath, one of you will betray me. One of you will, maybe better, set me up. And John and Peter, which one? the one to whom I give the bread. And with that, he reached out toward Judas, having dipped the bread. He and Judas met eyes. They both knew that the other knew what was going to happen. Judas took the bread and got up and left. And then we're told in John's gospel, Satan entered him, took full possession of him. Again, not to do something evil, but to do a perceived good. Back in the 1970s, a late 2nd century Coptic papyrus titled the Gospel of Judas was discovered near Ben Massah in Egypt. And the Gospel of Judas portrays Judas as acting on Jesus' instructions. It portrays Judas as being the only one of Jesus' disciples who truly understood him And the only one that Jesus could truly trust to carry out this mission. Now again, I can't prove any of this, but I think Judas is a much, much more complex character than we begin to imagine. So think about that, and you can apply it to yourself as well. You know, when Satan attempts to influence us, it's always through a good motive. It's always thinking that we're going to do something good, or perhaps rationalizing a very evil deed. So there we have a little meditation, a little thought on Judas Iscariot, one of the main figures in the story of the Passion, and I think the most misunderstood of all the characters in the drama.
0: You're listening to Scripture Uncovered with Dr. Bill Creasy, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Now, back to the program. Here's Dr. Creasy.
1: We're now moving into the question-answer segment of the podcast. Let's have a look at question one. It was sent to us by Bruce Yu, and he writes, I find the Holy Spirit to be a difficult concept to explain. Is the Holy Spirit an expression of God's love for His Son and for us? Or is the Holy Spirit something else? Please enlighten us on this. Well, thank you for the question, Bruce. And and it's a really good question and a difficult one. The whole concept of the Trinity, that is God as three persons in one, is a difficult concept to grasp. I think the single best book written on it is St. Augustine's on the Trinity, but it's pretty heavy duty reading. So the Holy Spirit, let me step back for a moment and look at the Trinity and the person of the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons in one, all three are fully present. If we look at Scripture, all three persons of the Trinity are fully present on every single page of Scripture. But God the Father is the dominant figure in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament while God the Son is the dominant figure in the Gospels, and God the Holy Spirit is the dominant figure from Acts chapter two, the birth of the church at Pentecost, all the way through the book of Revelation. All three are always on stage at one time, but in the Old Testament, God the Father is on the fourth stage. Gospels, God the Son is on the four stage, and Acts onward, God, the Holy Spirit, is on the fourth stage. What is the Holy Spirit's job? Now, the Holy Spirit has two distinct jobs. Number one, in dealing with the world, the Holy Spirit's job is to create a sense of conviction. That is, a sense of truly understanding the holiness of God, the reality of sin, and the inevitable consequences that must follow from those two. If God is infinitely holy and sin is infinitely sinful, then God must judge sin. So holding up that mirror of reality to the world allows each and every one of us born into the world in a condition of sin to look into the mirror of reality and recognize the reality of of our sin and our desperate need for a savior. We cannot come one step closer to Christ until we recognize our need to be saved. And that's the job of the Holy Spirit in the world and that's the only job of the Holy Spirit in the world. Secondly, the Holy Spirit operates within the church. First, with the church as a corporate body, a collection of believers, the body of Christ. The job of the Holy Spirit is to guide, shape, and nurture the church down through history. And when the church is attentive to the Holy Spirit, the church does heroic things. When the church ignores the Holy Spirit and follows its own agenda, the church does horrible, scandalous things. The job of the Holy Spirit with the church is to guide, shape, and nurture the church down through the ages. With the individual believer, the Holy Spirit's job is twofold. One, to comfort each one of us, the paraclete, paraceletos, to be called alongside, to put his arm around us, to comfort us as an expression of God's love for us and of God's love within the Trinity itself of the Son and the Father and the Holy Spirit. But the holy spirit puts his arm around us and says come on i know you can't live this christian life all by yourself i'm here to help you i'm here with you lean on me i'll help you do this the second purpose of the holy spirit with the individual believer is to offer and provide talents gifts and abilities for each one of us to use in the service of the family of god that is Every single one of us who is a believer is given gifts of the Holy Spirit. Not just one, oftentimes several. Our job is to discern what those gifts are and then develop them and put them to use. I guess if I have any gift of the Holy Spirit, it's, it's teaching. I'm not sure what else it would be, but like any gift, any spiritual gift, that gift has to be developed. I had to go to undergraduate school. I had to get a master's degree. I had to have a PhD. I spent 30 years developing my teaching, developing that gift in order that it might be used effectively. If your gift is healing, apply to the 10 best medical schools in the country. If you get into one, do it, develop your gift and put it to work in service of the family of God. So the Holy Spirit has a particular role within the dynamic of the Trinity. Yes, the Holy Spirit is an expression of God's love for His Son and for us, but the Holy Spirit is more, much more, than that. So let me turn to a second question. Question number two is from Ray J. Who compiled the Bible and how can we be sure that he or she included the correct books or left something out? Good question. The Bible is not a single book, but a collection of books. Biblios in Greek means little books, a collection of little books. Now, all these books ordered in the way they are in the canon of Scripture create a unified literary work. But each individual book of Scripture has its own history, uh, its own historical and cultural context, it's on textual history, and some are more simple than others, others quite complex. But each individual book, imagine if we were living at the time of, uh, of St. Paul, and we were members of a synagogue in, oh, let's say, uh, Cappadocia. And we had a small community, and we wanted to study scripture. Well, what is scripture? There were a lot of books written. We have the books in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, but there were thousands of books that were written about the same topics. Why these particular books? Honestly, I think market forces were strongly involved. If we were a synagogue, we had to find a master copy of the book, get hold of it, hire a scribe to copy it by hand, And that was expensive. So what was available to us? Who could copy it? How many individual books could we afford to copy? And over time, the books that were thought to be most important, most significant, rose to the top. The cream rose to the top. Now, after the temple was destroyed in AD 70, there's no more temple, there's no more sacrifice, there's no more Jerusalem. How does a Jew continue being a Jew? Well, in 1890, the rabbis met at Tiberius up in Galilee and addressed that very problem. How do we continue being Jews? Well, we become a people of the book. All right, what is the book? And the book was defined at that time as the 39 books in the common canon of the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, the 39 books that were originally written in Hebrew prior to the Hebrew scriptures being translated to Greek around 250 BC. They were the ones that were marked out as canonical scripture for the Jews in AD 90. For Christians the New Testament, 27 books in the New Testament, there were a lot more written. I mentioned the Gospel of Judas in our reflection on Judas. There were hundreds of others, but once again the cream of the crop rose to the surface. The books that people believed, the believers believed, were most important, most significant for them. Ultimately, in the late fourth century, St. Augustine called the Council of Hippo. And at the Council of Hippo, one of the items on the agenda was, what books are we going to consider as inspired canonical scripture? And the 27 books of the New Testament or those They had been in other lists, partially, but that canon at the Council of Hippo became the canon of the New Testament. Now, for Catholics, Orthodox, Coptic Christians, there are additional books in the Hebrew Scriptures, books that were written not originally in Hebrew, but in Greek between 250 B.C. and A.D. 70, books that Jesus himself and the apostles would have been familiar with. Those were included, not all, only some, seven, were included in the larger canonical scriptures of the Roman Catholic, Greek Orthodox, and Coptic churches.
0: You've been listening to Scripture Uncovered with Dr. Bill Creasy. Don't forget, we want to hear from you, so go to scriptureuncovered.com and submit your questions. Dr. Creasy might answer them on air. That's scriptureuncovered.com, submit your questions, And also, if you have a moment, leave us a rating and review in iTunes or wherever you're accessing the podcast. This is the best way to help us spread the word about Logos Bible Study and about Scripture Uncovered. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.